want you to imagine in your mind what it would be like, what your, what your Christian faith would be like, what your walk with God would be like without the Bible. Where would you go if you wanted to learn about God? Where would you learn how God designed us to live and how he expects us to conduct our lives on a day-to-day basis? Do you think without the Bible you would even know the name of Jesus? I think really when we think about it, the Bible is our foundation for our lives as Christians. And every week here at Freedens, we have a message that is based on the Bible. We usually dig into one passage of Scripture, look into it, try to understand it, and then try to apply it to our lives here in the 21st century. But oftentimes, as we are doing that, we can week out and we're digging into Scripture, we just assume that the Bible is trustworthy and authoritative. We really don't set out each week to really question the Bible and ask, can we really trust this? Is this really the authority that we should be looking to? We simply assume that. And I think that's fine because partly I don't think we have the time every week to try to to prove the authority of Scripture. But sometimes it's important that we take a step back and ask some of the deeper questions about, is the Bible really trustworthy? Can we really uh, depend on what it says? Or is it just a myth that came about and, and we go along with what a lot of society says that the Bible really isn't something that can be trusted? I want to show you a video right now that shows interviews of people, I think it's on a college campus, that I think is an accurate representation of what people in our society think about the Bible. And it shows how important it is that we sometimes ask these deeper questions about whether or not the Bible is trustworthy. So I invite you to watch what our society thinks about the Bible. Some of the things I, I feel it's not true. Like I, I do sense discrepancy in the Bible, but force is religious faith and uh, its meaning. Having a God, like there's a higher being, I do believe that. I think they're kind of made up. They're made up by a bunch of people back in the day. I think they're true, but like I said, that's the way I was brought up. I don't think everybody believes that, but personally, I think it's true. No, I believe I believe it's true. Um, I don't know to to what extent, but uh, for the most part, I believe they're true. Well, there's been a lot of uh, recent findings that have been proving them historically, so there's got to be some truth to them. Yeah, I believe the, the, the Bible is 100% true. I mean, you always, have, well, no, nah, I can't say 100% true because you always have some things that are made up, but um, almost, I believe the majority of the Bible is true. I believe it's accurate to an extent, but um, like I said, people people did write the Bible instead of God, so I don't know how much of it, it might be opinion or someone else just throwing stuff in. I think it's definitely more like a fable as far as uh, some of the stories they make. It's, it seems to be more of a lesson to be learned rather than an actual event most of those stories. Uh, I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're like, I guess, I'm, I'm not quite exactly sure. But. It was written by man, and there's no proof that it came, the words came from a higher power. But I think it's a nice story, and it has good messages behind it. Well, I think uh, it's pretty intense. Like, if you read it sometimes, like, everything just comes together sometimes. It's like, yeah, even if it's all metaphoric, you know, it still, like, interplays in our life so much that it's true. Well, the Bible's been in- interpreted, you know, by different people so many times that, you know, I can't, I have no place to say if it's true or not or 
exactly to the word, but I think that you can take the Bible and definitely learn from it, you know, not having to establish that fact. I mean, I'm Muslim, but like, it'll, a lot of it coincides with like what we believe and so, okay. so I'm guessing they're true. As I've worked on the college campuses for a number of years and just interacted with a variety of people in various communities, when I see that video, I think, you know what? I think it's actually quite accurate if you go out and take a random cross-section of people in terms of what people's perceptions are of the Bible. You'll find some people who say, you know, I think the Bible's true. That's how I was brought up. And then, like one of the guys on there, he began to begin to question himself on, is the Bible really true? Well, yeah, I think so, but there might be some errors in it. You find a lot of people with questions about the Bible. And I find even within churches, uh, a lot of sincere Christians still have questions about, is the Bible trustworthy? How do we get the Bible? Where did it come from? Today we're in the second week of our text message series where we're studying what we really believe about the Bible and why we believe it. And this week's question is the question of how do we get the books that are in the Bible? How do we get the books that are in the Bible? This uh, technical term for the list of books that's in the Bible is called the canon of Scripture. Now, when you hear the canon of Scripture, you may be thinking, well, that's, um, what is that? Is that talking about some canon that shoots artillery or, or shoots cannonballs? Well, not quite. This morning, I was in a conversation with someone who saw the title of this message, how it's canonization, and, and he asked, well, is that about canning something? No, not quite. Um, a canon refers to a rule or a standard or some measuring rod um, that, that helps you know what is accurate and what's not. And the canon of Scripture is the list of authoritative books that belong in the Bible. It's the list of authoritative books that belong in the Bible. And the, the process by which we gain what those books are is called canonization. And as we start uh, this morning talking about the canon of Scripture and canonization, I want to give a bit of a quiz, uh, five questions for you to consider. You're not going to be really tested. You're not going to be asked to give these, uh, your answers to these questions publicly. But in your bulletin, you have an insert. And on the back of the insert is a place where you can take notes on this message. And there are five quiz questions on there. And I want you just to take a look at that briefly and answer those five questions based on what your first response is. Here are the five questions to this quiz. First of all, how many books are in the Bible? You think there are 39 books, 58 books, 66 books, or 70 books? Circle your answer. Number two, just your first response to these. Number two, true or false? The Hebrew Bible, which is basically the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible from Jesus' time had the same number of books as our English Old Testaments do today. Hebrew Bible of Jesus' time had the same number of books as our English Old Testaments today. True or false? Number three, true or false? Although most of the New Testament books were written within a few decades of the time of Christ, one New Testament book was written around 200 A.D. True or false? Now, number four, true or false? The authoritative list of Old Testament books was already established by the time of Jesus. So the list was already established, the canon of the Old Testament was already established by the time that Jesus came around. Is that true or false? And finally, number five, when was the first complete list of New Testament books written? I give you multiple choice to help out a little bit. Was it 90 AD, 118 AD, 325, or 367? 
So that's a little brief quiz. We will be returning to these questions as we go throughout this morning. Uh, but we're looking at the canon of Scripture. How do we get the books that are in the Bible? And to begin looking at this topic, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 22. Uh, Revelation 22 is the last chapter in Scripture. Uh, Revelation is the last book in Scripture. And uh, here we're looking at the last verses in Revelation. And normally, as I said earlier, when we go through um, a message on a Sunday morning, we really dig into one passage of Scripture. But in these first few messages of the text message series, we're doing a little bit differently uh, because we're really trying to establish the reliability and the authority of Scripture. And partly to do that, we have to take a step back from Scripture and ask, how do we even get the Bible in the first place? So this morning, we're going to use these last few verses of Revelation 22 as a launching point to start us on this topic of how do we get this list of books that are in Scripture. So I invite you to follow along in Revelation 22. We're going to be reading in verse 18 through verse 21, which is the very last verse in Scripture. Here John says in verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of prophecy in this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Now, it's interesting to see what John is saying here at the very end of the book of Revelation. He feels like it's very important to clarify that you can't add or take away from anything in the book of Scripture. And there are a couple of conclusions I want to draw from this. One is that God takes the content of Scripture very, very seriously. I mean, he says straight up here, don't add anything to Scripture. Don't take anything away. And he says that there are going to be plagues that come upon people who try to add or take things away from Scripture. Now, scholars have debated through the centuries of what are these plagues that he's talking about? What does it mean that the person's share in the tree of life will be taken away? Scholars have debated that for centuries. I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to dig into that, but the bottom line is that it's a really bad thing if you start messing with the content of Scripture. So don't add or take away from it because God takes the content of Scripture very seriously. A second conclusion to draw from this is that God's Word has definite boundaries. God's Word has de definite boundaries because unless you have some sort of boundaries around what is Scripture and what isn't Scripture, you really can't know if you're adding Scripture to it or taking, taking it away. You have to know what is Scripture if you want to know if you're adding to it or taking it away. And so God's Word definitely has definite boundaries. And when you look at this passage here in Revelation 22, I think that John is specifically referring to the book of Revelation. Don't add to it, don't take it away. But if you look throughout the rest of Scripture, you see the same command repeated several different times. And so it applies to the whole of Scripture as well, that, that there is a defined content of Scripture, that you shouldn't add to it and you shouldn't take it away. For instance, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses says to the people of Israel, Do not add to what I command you, and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. See, he says the very same thing near the beginning of the Bible as John said near the end. Don't add to it, don't take it away. And then in Proverbs 30, uh, we see uh, something very similar. Proverbs 30, verse 6 now, verses 5 and 6 says, Every word of, the God, of God is flawless. Do not add to his words, or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. 
So we see this theme throughout Scripture of don't add to God's words and don't take them away. There's a defined content of Scripture. And so, so we see that, that God does want us to take Scripture very seriously. But we have the question of, okay, what is Scripture? Well, here's a working description of what we're talking about today when we're talking about the canon of Scripture. The 66 books in the Bible are those that were recognized as being inspired by God. The 66 books in the Bible are those that were recognized as being inspired by God. Now, you may recognize in there there's one of the quiz questions. So if you put, uh, I think it's letter C, 66 uh, books in the Bible, that's correct. Um, But there are 66 books in the Bible, and they are those that were recognized as being inspired by God. If you want to learn more about what the inspiration of Scripture is all about, um, Pastor David talked about that last week. You can go on our website and uh, hear his message on the inspiration of Scripture. But right now I want to give a bit of a history lesson on how we got the 66 books that are in Scripture. Now, I recognize that this is going to feel like drinking out of a fire hydrant. It's going to feel like information overload as we talk about how we got this canon of Scripture. But I think it's important that we understand the historical context of how did we get Scripture. Because if we understand this, it will help us uh, understand more the reliability and the authority of the Bible that we hold so dearly. And so if you feel like, well, there's no way I can take all this in right now, that's fine. Because again, uh, this sermon will be on the website within a day or two. And also, throughout this entire series, we're putting supplemental documents on the website, right on the sermon page, that you can download that give more information on these topics in a very clear and concise way. So we encourage you to go to the website uh, early this week and check out the additional information. Uh, But here goes with some of the history of how we got the Bible. First of all, God began to speak through humans to form what we know as the Old Testament. The Old Testament consists of 39 books uh, that, that span a course of time from the creation of the world all the way until about 400 B.C. Uh, 400 B.C. was around the time of Malachi the prophet. That's the last book in our English Old Testaments. That was also the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. So the span of the Old Testament covers creation all the way through um, about 400 B.C. And it started with Moses recording the first five books of the Bible. Moses was one of the greatest prophets in Israel's history. As you started recording Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, um, people began to see that those books that he was writing are more than just human words. They're divine words. They're God speaking through Moses in order to record God's words for subsequent generations. And so they looked at, at Moses' writings as something special. They set them aside as Scripture. And then as, as subsequent people in Israel's history began writing as well, they began setting those, those things aside as Scripture as well. Jo- Joshua wrote soon after Moses did. And Joshua's book was set aside as Scripture. They recognized, you know what, this is more than just a human work. It's inspired by God. As more and more prophets through Israel's history began writing, people began setting aside uh, those prophetic books as Scripture as well. And really, as you look through Israel's history, there wasn't really a whole lot of debate over is this history or is this Scripture or is it not Scripture? There were a few books in the Old Testament canon that were debated uh, quite a bit. Esther is one of them. The reason that Esther was debated and uh, whether or not it should be in Scripture is because Esther doesn't actually contain the name of God. And so there was some debate over it. Uh, but then they concluded, you know what, this has the fingerprint of God. It should be included in Scripture as well. Another Old Testament book over which there was significant debate was the Song of Songs. 
And the reason why that was debated was because it's such a sensual book. Uh, and people were thinking, oh, that doesn't belong in the Bible because it's so sensual. But as people began to dig into it more and more, they realized, you know what? This does belong in Scripture. So you have the 39 books of the Old Testament uh, that, were, that were gathered. And now we come to the quiz question number two, true or false? The Hebrew Bible, meaning the Old Testament, has the same, same number of books as the English Old Testament. How many of you put false on that? I guess I am asking for a public opinion uh, on one of these. How many of you put false? If you put false, you are correct. It's a little bit tricky because the content of the Hebrew Bible and the English Bible is the exact same. But the way it's divided into books is different. Let me explain. Uh, in our English Bibles, we have some books that are divided into two. You have First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. So in our English Bibles, those each count as two books. But in the Hebrew Bible, those were one book. You had Samuel, you had Kings, you had Chronicles. They were all in one scroll, one book. But then a few hundred years before the time of Christ, uh, the Hebrew uh, Bible was translated into Greek to make it accessible to people in the Roman Empire. And when it was translated to Greek, Greek takes up more space on a page than Hebrew does. The words are longer. There are more letters in Greek. And so it wouldn't all fit in one scroll. So, for instance, Samuel, which previously in Hebrew fit in one scroll, now had to be divided on two scrolls for Greek. And that, that separation between First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, carried on down through the years into our English translations. In addition, in the Hebrew Bible... All 12 minor prophets, the last 12 books of our Old Testaments, were combined into one scroll. And so in the Hebrew Bible, you actually only have 24 books where English in the Old Testament. In our English Old Testaments, there are 39 books. So there are different numbers of books, but the content of the two is exactly the same. And so you come to the end of the Old Testament, which is around 450, 400 B.C. You have Malachi, who in our English Bibles is the last Old Testament book. Malachi foretold that there was going to be a prophet who would come in the spirit of Elijah. He was foretelling the coming of John the Baptist who would precede the coming of Jesus. And then after Malachi, there are about 400 years of silence from God where there are no prophets, there is no writing of Scripture. It's called the silent period. And then around 3 B.C., Jesus was born onto the scene. Now we come to quiz question. We're going to skip number three for now. We're going to come to number four. True or false? The authoritative, Old Testament, or authoritative list of Old Testament books was already established by the time of Jesus. That is true. That the Old Testament canon was established by the time of Jesus. We see Jesus in his ministry. He several different times affirms the canon of the Old Testament, affirms that the list of Old Testament books that he received was accurate. We're not going to have time this morning to go into that, but our document on the website will detail some of those things where Jesus affirms the, the Old Testament. But one of the things, other things we see with Jesus is that a number of times he doesn't hesitate to disagree with the Jewish leaders of his day about traditions that they hold to very firmly. So he's not afraid to disagree with them on the traditions, but you never see one time where Jesus disagrees with anyone on the list of books that should be contained in the Old Testament. In addition, Jesus actually quoted from 24 of the 39 Old Testament books. And when you look throughout the entirety of the New Testament, there are actually quotes from 36 of the 39 
Old Testament books, which showed that the, the Jesus and the New Testament authors held the Old Testament books as being scripture and authoritative. Now we come to quiz question number three, true or false. Although most of the New Testament, Testament books were written within a few decades of the time of Christ, one New Testament book was written around 200 A.D. That's false. Because all of the New Testament books were actually written between 45 and 90 A.D. There was a process that began occurring very soon after uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus where it became apparent that Scripture is expanding. Jesus came in the form of God and spoke God's words to people. And then Paul in his writings referred to Jesus' words as Scripture. And then a very interesting uh, twist, Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, began referring to Paul's words as Scripture. I'll, I'll refer there for just a moment. 2 Peter 3, verse 16, uh, Peter says, Paul writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain, contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other Scriptures. Do you hear that Peter is equating Paul's letters to other scriptures. Other scriptures in this context refers to the Old Testament. But Peter is put, putting Paul's letters on the same level of authority and divine inspiration as Old Testament scriptures were. And in that Jewish context, that was a big deal. And so we see that the content of scripture during that New Testament era, during that first century after Christ, was expanding. And over time, people began to collect these New Testament writings into, into a book which would eventually form the New Testament. We see the early church leaders beginning to quote from New Testament books as being authoritative as Scripture. For instance, there's a church leader named Clement in 96 AD who quoted from 11 New Testament books in his writings and quoted from them as being authoritative Scripture. Polycarp, another early church leader who lived from about 69 AD to 155 AD, he quoted from 18 different New Testament books as being authoritative scripture. And then around 190 AD, there is a listing of New Testament books um, that we, we don't want today as the New Testament, but it's called the Meritorian Canon. It's named after the man who discovered this old manuscript. But it lists out 22 of our 27 New Testament books. So 22 of the 27 books were listed by 190 AD. And you have a number of other lists that were coming about during that time which contain a number of the books as well. Now, you may have a question of why did it take so long for this list of New Testament books to be formed? Well, we need to understand that it was a gradual process of gathering the list of books that would be in the New Testament, but it was a very intentional process. But I want to dig a little bit more into why it took quite a while. You see, when we have our books, we bind them together like this. It's amazing that in about 1,200 pages right here, I have the entirety of the Old and New Testament. But back then, every book in the Bible, Old and New Testament, was a scroll. Can you imagine what it would be like to carry around a whole set of scrolls? One person wouldn't be able to carry around all 66 scrolls at once. The New Testament letters and the New Testament books all were circulated as individual letters to, to, to specific groups of people. And they weren't necessarily gathered all at once. It was a process over a period of decades and even a couple centuries of understanding, okay, this is Scripture and this isn't. Because not everyone knew about all the letters and all the books at once. Because remember, they were floating around as these individual scrolls written by apostles and written by church leaders. 
And it took a while for people to understand uh, where everything was and what was Scripture and what wasn't Scripture. So I think it makes sense that unless God wanted to drop this magical list of biblical books from heaven and say, okay, this is your Bible, he didn't do that. But unless he did that, it makes sense that it would take a period of time for the early church leaders to begin to discern this is Scripture and this isn't. Now we come to quiz question number five. When was the first complete list of New Testament books written? It's actually letter D, 367 AD. There may have been an earlier list than that that we don't have, but a man named Athanasius was the first person that we know of to write a list, a complete list of all 27 New Testament books. And then a few years later in 393, there was a church council of all types of church leaders and experts who gathered in North Africa in a city called Hippo. And at that church council, uh, these church leaders, after an intense time of dialogue and study into uh, the books that were under consideration, they affirmed that the 27 books that we currently have in the New Testament are in fact scripture with the same level of authority as the Old Testament scriptures. Now you may think, okay, that sounds kind of scary that you have a group of people who is deciding what is scripture and what is it. And that's actually one of the objections that a lot of people bring against the Bible. They say, well, you just had a bunch of people who sat down in a closed room with closed doors and they, they just drew straws and decided, okay, this is going to be what the Bible is. And then it's passed down. But I think we need to recognize the process that took place here. Remember that working description that I gave you earlier? That the 66 books of the Bible are those that were recognized as being inspired by God? That term recognized is key here. That the, that the people who were putting together these lists and helping discern what is Scripture and what isn't, they were simply trying to recognize what God already had put his fingerprints on. They were trying to recognize what is Scripture and what isn't. What has God already inspired and what hasn't he inspired? Think about the Sistine Chapel. It's a thing, I think it's over in Italy. Uh, very beautiful, uh, created primarily by Michelangelo. Back when he created it, was it a masterpiece the moment he created it? Or was it only a masterpiece as people began to understand over the course of years and decades and centuries how amazing it was? I would say that it was a masterpiece right when he made it. It may have taken people a period of time to understand how amazing it was. And even today, people can still go there and just gasp in amazement at it. But it was a masterpiece from the very beginning. And it's the same way with Scripture. That those early church leaders, they weren't trying to put some sort of authority in the books of the Bible that, weren't, that wasn't already there. They were just trying to recognize the masterpiece that God had already inspired in the letters and in the books of the Bible. So they were just trying to recognize what God already had his fingerprints on. Now, I think it's pretty important that uh, we do have a list of, of books of the Bible so we know what belongs there and what doesn't. We need to understand that there are some certain criteria that the early church leaders were using to discern what's Scripture and what isn't. It's not just like anyone can come up with Scripture or come up with something and then submit it and hope it gets accepted as Scripture. Um, I have a friend who was a missionary in China uh, for a number of years. And at one point, she was leading a Bible study with a bunch of young women. They were young Christians. And there was one young Christian woman there who had just been a, a follower of Christ just for a period of a few months. And she was in a Bible study with my friend at that point. And they were studying Scripture together. And, and this young Christian woman had a question about, how do we get the Bible that we have today? 
And, and she'd been reading the Psalms and really liked the Psalms and said, you know what? I've written a number of nice poems about God. Is there a way that I can send in a poem and maybe get it added to Scripture? And I love her innocence and her naivety there and just her desire to contribute to God's Word. But we need to understand that there's not some place that any random person can just send in uh, uh, um, an entry and hope to get it published in Scripture. It's not like Reader's Digest if you, where if you have a good story, you can send it in to some address and hope to get it published. There are some very specific criteria over what is Scripture and what isn't. I want to spend just a few moments talking about five of the main criteria that the early church leaders used to discern what is Scripture and what isn't. One of the criteria... And this is one of the main ones. Is, was it written by a prophet or an apostle? Was it written by a prophet or an apostle? Because God spoke in very unique and powerful ways through the prophets and through the apostles. And the vast majority of books we have in Scripture were written directly by prophets or apostles who were recognized as being spokespeople for God. And the few books of the Bible that weren't written by prophets and apostles were oftentimes written by people who were very closely associated with prophets and apostles. For instance, Mark was not a follower of Christ during Christ's ministry, but uh, he was very closely associated with Peter, who was an apostle. Luke was not a follower of Christ during Jesus' earthly ministry, but he wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. But Luke was very closely associated with Paul. So Paul, as an apostle, could put his stamp of approval on Luke's writings. So that's one of the main criteria. Was it written by a prophet or an apostle? Secondly, does it agree with the rest of the Word of God? If there are theological in inconsistencies between this proposed book for Scripture and what we already know to be the rest of Scripture, then that proposed book is thrown out because it needs to align with the rest of Scripture. Thirdly, does it have widespread acceptance in the early church, especially among people who knew the authors? If the people who knew the authors of Scripture, such as Peter or Paul, if those people rejected the writings of these authors as being scripture, then, then the early church should reject that as well as being scripture. Early church needed to have widespread approval of the books of the Bible for them to be even considered as being part of scripture. Fourthly, is it historically accurate? God is very clear in his word that everything in his word should be flawless and without error. And so if there are historical inaccuracies in a proposed book for scripture, it needs to be thrown out. It may be helpful in other ways, but certainly not uh, worthy of being in Scripture. And finally, and this is a little bit more subjective, does it come with the power of God? Does it come with the power of God? In Hebrews chapter 4, it says that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. And this is a subjective thing where, where people are asking, does this have the fingerprints of God on it? Does God speak through this? Or is, is this book simply trying to uphold some sort of political agenda or personal agenda or to su su support some sort of Greek philosophy of the time? Because a lot of the books that were rejected from being included in Scripture during that early church time, they, they were trying to uphold some sort of political philosophy or some sort of Greek philosophy. And so these are five of the main criteria that these early church leaders were using when they were trying to discern what is Scripture and what isn't. Now, we're nearing the end of this uh, drinking of a fire hydrant type of thing, uh, but I want to examine one of the key questions that comes up when we talk about the books in the Bible. And it's the question of what about those books that didn't make it into the Bible? 
What about the books that, that aren't included in the scripture but may have been considered? We can divide those into a couple different categories. One category is the books that were written before the time of Christ. And a specific name for those is called the Apocrypha. Uh, for those of you who come from a Roman Catholic background uh, or who are familiar with Roman Catholic Bibles, you probably recognize that the Old Testament in the Roman Catholic Bible doesn't have 39 books. It actually has 46 books. There are seven, seven extra Old Testament books in Catholic Bibles. And also there are four additional inclusions in, a, in existing Old Testament books that are also in all the other Bibles. And so it's important that we ask questions of, okay, what is the Apocrypha? Apocrypha comes from a Greek word that means hidden meaning. And I want to give a little bit of historical background behind the Apocrypha. But as I do so, I want to do so in a very sensitive manner because I recognize that we have a number of people here who come from Catholic backgrounds, um, who even had very good experiences in Catholic churches. And so I want to be very sensitive as we uh, touch on this topic. And I want to say, I know the priests in town really well. I consider them friends. And so I want to be sensitive on this topic, but I also think it's important that we examine clearly why do we have a difference between Bibles? Why do some Bibles have 46 Old Testament books? Why do some have 39? Well, here's some of the history. Those Apocrypha were written during those 400 years between the time of Malachi and the time of Christ, what are known as the silent years, when, when people recognize there aren't any prophets through whom God is speaking. These, these books that were written during that time, a lot of them are historical books of what was taking on in Israel, or what was taking place in Israel during that time. And there are also some books that were kind of like our book of Proverbs in Scripture. And so that's what the Apocrypha were like. And in the early church, there was definitely an awareness of the Apocrypha. Uh, there were, um, some people read them. Uh, there's some early church uh, leaders like the Apocrypha. A lot of early church leaders pushed back pretty hard against the Apocrypha, saying, you know what, we need to recognize that's definitely not Scripture. It may be helpful for um, just inspirational reading or for learning history, but it's definitely not Scripture. When we look at Jesus, we don't have any record of him ever referring to the Apocrypha, nor throughout the rest of the New Testament we don't see anyone uh, quoting from the Apocrypha in any authoritative way. And then you fast forward a few, actually a few hundred years to the 1500s. Uh, the Apocrypha was still just kind of floating around, still distinguished uh, by all church leaders as being something separate from the Old Testament. But in the, in the 1500s, if you know your church history, you know that in England there was a lot of strife going on in the church. Uh, there was the Catholic Church, and then, then there was a group of people called the Protesters. They became known as Protestants. And Martin Luther was one of the leaders of those. And they were protesting against some of what they saw as abuses within the Catholic Church during that time. And, and there was a lot of strife and debate during that time. And then in 1546, the Roman Catholic Church held a council in a city called Trent. It was called the Council of Trent. And at the Council of Trent, the, the Catholic leaders decided that, you know what? The Apocrypha needs to be included in the Old Testament. I think that one of the reasons why the Apocrypha was included in the Old Testament was that it contains some of the teaching that Martin Luther was pushing back against pretty hard. Teaching about, say, purgatory or prayers for the dead. Or also uh, teaching about um, justification by works rather than faith. 
And so the Apocrypha contains some of this teaching. And, and so there's a lot of speculation. That's one of the reasons why the Roman Catholic Church did include that in the Old Testament. I think it is interesting that when you look further back in history, uh, Catholic leaders, even during the time of the Reformation when Martin Luther uh, was coming uh, into in prominence, the Catholic Church even then made a distinct, distinction between the Old Testament and the Apocrypha. But then in 1546, they affirmed that now the Apocrypha is part of Scripture. Now, when I look at those criteria for canonization that we were looking at a few moments ago, to me it seems like the Apocrypha fails at least four of the tests for um, being a part of Scripture. Because the Apocrypha wasn't written by a prophet or an apostle. In fact, even if you look, for instance, in the first Maccabees, which is a part of the Apocrypha, in 1 Maccabees, it actually says that Simon, who's one of the main figures in the Apocrypha, Simon shall be their permanent leader and high priest until a true prophet arises. Even the Apocrypha, you recognize, or they recognize that there aren't any prophets right now who are truly speaking from God. And without a prophet, you can't really have Scripture. So it fails the first test. It, it, theologically, as we already referenced, it doesn't necessarily agree with the rest of God's Word. It didn't, definitely didn't have widespread acceptance in the early church. And historically, there have been shown to be a number of errors in how it records historical events or in how the history of the Apocrypha compares with the history of the rest of the Old Testament. And so my humble opinion is that the Apocrypha shouldn't be a part of Scripture. It may still be helpful for understanding history during those 400 years before Christ, but it shouldn't necessarily be a part of Scripture. So that, those are the books that were written before the time of Christ. Now, what about the books that were written after the time of Christ? Uh, you may be familiar with the book, The Da Vinci Code. Uh, it came out a few years ago, caused a huge firestorm of media attention. I want to read to you a little section from The Da Vinci Code, which talks about um, some supposed other books that were considered for inclusion in Scripture. Uh, the author, Dan Brown, said, more than 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament, and yet only a relative few were chosen for inclusion. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he says a little bit later, The Bible as we know it today was collated by the pagan Roman emperor Constantine the Great. Now, when I hear those things, and especially considering what we're talking about this morning, I think, you know what? Those things are just plain wrong. First of all, there were not 80 Gospels that were being considered a lot of the Gospels that um, we may hear about that are in Scripture, like the Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Mary, Gospel of Judas, those were written uh, between 150 and 200 A.D., well after, over 100 years after the time of Christ. A couple of years ago, you may remember the media firestorm about the Gospel of Judas. Um, in 2006, National Geographic put on a, a big documentary on TV on, on Gospel of Judas, it really seemed like the Gospel of Judas was this thing that was just discovered and was making huge waves in Christianity. But we need to understand that if you look at trends, every few years, the media grabs a hold of something that calls into question Christianity and makes a big firestorm about it. Actually, the Gospel of Judas was discovered back in the mid-1970s, and then it was just in 2006 that someone grabbed a hold of that and decided to make a big deal out of it. But even the Gospel of Judas was written between 150 and 200 A.D., well after the time of prophets or apostles. And so these, these other Gospels weren't even really considered for Scripture because they didn't come close to fitting in the criteria for canonicity 
They were written well after the time of Christ. And they were books that were definitely trying to push forward some sort of political agenda or Greek philosophy. And so I think we can have, I don't just think, I know that we can have absolute confidence in the 66 books that we currently have in our Bible that these are the trustworthy Word of God. Now, in closing, I invite you to turn in Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, grab one from the pew in front of you. Turn to the table of contents. I want to just quickly walk through uh, the canon of Scripture. This is something I do periodically every couple of months with someone either here at the church or in the community. Because a lot of people don't quite know, okay, we have the books of the Bible. How do they fit together? So you have a table of contents in front of you. I want to just do a quick walk through. This is also in the document that will be on the Internet. You have two basic parts of the Bible. You have the Old Testament and New Testament. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those are the books that Moses wrote that contain the history of, of the world, really, from the creation through the time where Israel is about to enter the Promised Land. You go from Joshua all the way through Esther. Those are historical books about the history of Israel. And they cover the time of, um, from the time that Israel entered the Promised Land until about 400 B.C. Then from Job until the Song of Songs, you have what are called poetic books or wisdom books. Uh, those are books that were also written during that historical period, um, but they're, they're a little bit different genre. There are more poems, there are more proverbs, uh, things that, to learn wisdom. And then Isaiah through Malachi are all prophets. Isaiah through Daniel are called the major prophets because they're longer. Uh, and then... Hosea through Malachi are, the short, are called the minor prophets because they're shorter books. And, so, and, and those prophets actually take place chronologically during the same historical period as basically 1 Samuel through 2 Chronicles. And then you zip ahead to the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four Gospels. They're the four biographies of Jesus. Acts is the history of the early church. And then Romans through Philemon are letters that were written by the Apostle Paul. Romans through Second uh, Thessalonians were letters that Paul wrote to churches. And they're listed, or they're named after the city in which the church where the letter went uh, was. And First Timothy through Philemon were, were also those letters of Paul written to individuals named after the individuals who received the letter. And then Hebrews through Jude are called the general letters, written by a variety of different people to a variety of different people, generally named after the people who wrote these letters, and Revelation is a book of prophecy primarily about end times and persevering through suffering. And so that's a quick snapshot of the canon of Scripture. Um, again, this stuff is available online. If you missed any of this or would like more information, please go to our website and you can find, that, uh, find more information there. I want to close just by reading 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Because it's one thing to talk about the authority of Scripture. It's another thing to live the authority of Scripture out in our lives. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. My prayer for us is that we will understand that Scripture is reliable, that's authoritative, that we would know why we believe what we believe about the Bible, but that we would not stop there, that we would actually make the Bible a part of our lives, they would be reading it even on a daily basis and seeking to ask the question of how does this apply to our lives and that we would be taking steps to apply it. Because Scripture is inspired by God. It's God-breathed. We have a trustworthy copy right here. 
And it's useful for, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we will be prepared to live in the way that God designed us to live. But in order for us to really make that our own, we need to learn it and apply it. My prayer is that we will be people who apply God's word to our lives. Let's pray. Lord, this morning um, we recognize that we've covered a lot of material. Uh, we look back through history and uh, I imagine that there are some parts of this that are still a bit confusing in our minds. But Lord, it is amazing when we look to see how you have worked through human history to create and then to preserve a copy of Scripture for us here in the 21st century to hold in our hands, to study, and to apply. I pray that you will continue to increase our confidence in the trustworthiness of Scripture and that you will also motivate us, Lord, to apply it to our lives, that we may grow as men and women who follow Christ faithfully. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.